You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. Have you ever noticed how fads work? They come, they're there, they're really hot for a moment, and then they're gone, right? You know what a fad is? A fad is that thing, it's that something that a lot of people have huge enthusiasm over. And it's, it's huge for a season. Sometimes it's really short, sometimes it's a little longer. But, it, but before you know it, as hot as it was, it's cold. I mean, as, as rapidly as people got on board with it, they get off of it. And most fads don't last very long. They really don't. I thought I'd show you a few examples of fads that have happened over the last few decades. First of all, the 90s. Some of this will be very, very reminiscent for some of you, okay? The 90s. First fad in the 90s, Beanie Babies. Some of you invested your retirement in this, thinking you're going you're gonna to just sell them one each year and you'll be able to live off that. How's that working <laughs> anyway? Uh, Gigapets. How many of you had a Tamaguchi? Anybody in here have a Tamaguchi? Is it still alive? Still alive? Probably not. Uh, and then uh, Pokemon. How many of you played Pokemon? I, I kid you not, an, an adult man, gray hair, came up to me after first service and said, Pokemon is not a fad. I'm still playing it. And I go, dude, don't let anyone know that, okay? <laughs> so funny. Pokemon. Uh, the next one, baggy pants, okay? I am no longer in young adult ministry because of this fad right here, okay? I'm not kidding you. I was walking down the hall at South and Christian. There were two dudes in front of me. I saw about four inches of their boxers. Their pants were hanging way low. And my first thought wasn't, I wonder if they know Jesus. It was, they got to pull their pants up, and I can't stand it. So that, that fad's still hanging around if you're in certain areas of the culture, right? And then uh, the Macarena. How many of you did the Macarena? Hey, Macarena. Oh, I can't stand it. And then last but not least, Tickle Me Elmo in the 90s. People got in fights in Kmarts and Targets one Christmas to get Tickle Me Elmo. The next year, you couldn't give them away, right? So that's the 90s. The year 2000, the decade of 2000s, okay? The first one was the Atkins diet. This was amazing because you could eat as much bacon as you wanted and you would lose weight, right? It was the all-meat diet, all-protein diet, right? And apparently people had problems with cholesterol, but other than that. And then you had the, the Crocs, the craze. If you're still wearing Crocs, yeah, uh, it's a fad, okay? Uh, it's, it's been 20 years almost, right? And then you've got the Heelys. You remember this? Now, here's what. This is, these are wheels in the heel of your shoes. How many of you had a pair? Anybody in here have a pair of Heelys? Don't be as shy. Don't be. Be proud. Yeah, look at back there. The back there, a few Heelys. Three. That was a small fad, okay? And then the next one, this is MySpace. This is the beginning before Facebook. Those of you that are on Facebook, this, this was... This was social media. How many, anybody in here have a MySpace account? Look at that. That's amazing. That's amazing. Some of you are going, MySpace? What is that? And then, uh, and then this one, maybe the best of all, the Snuggie. The Snuggie. It's a blanket with arms in it. What a great invention. A great invention. Okay. And now, since 2010, these are the most recent fads, okay? The most recent fads are Angry Birds. How many of you play Angry Birds? How many of you have the app on your phone still? Yeah? 
Yeah, isn't that, it's a sickness, isn't it? Okay, go ahead. And then you've got gluten-free diets, okay? And here's the deal. I am so, I don't, I'm not sure what gluten is, but I know I'm against it, okay? Because some people are allergic to gluten. And then you have, oh yeah, grumpy cat, right? Okay, now here's the deal. The, the admin who works with me on this, Jessica Pasley, she's awesome. She does a great job, but she... She buzzed me and she said today, she helps me with all the PowerPoint stuff, and she texted me on Thursday and said, there are so many pictures of Grumpy Cat, I don't know what to choose from. This guy is like a, a, a rock star on the internet, right? Okay, and then you have the selfie, that, that's come in the last seven years, the selfie, you even have a stick now you can do the selfies with, and then you've got T-Bowing, we want to thank Tim Tebow for teaching us how to pray after a touchdown, and then last but certainly not least, we have zombies. Now, zombies have been around for a long time, but they've kind of made this faddish resurgence here thanks to The Walking Dead. Some of you are crazy, and some of you, some of you know you would not raise your hand if I said, do you watch The Walking Dead? Because you know Jesus is not happy with you when you watch it, okay? <laughs> I'm messing with you. I'm just messing with you. What <laughs> some of you are going, I hate this church now, okay? Because they think that Jesus doesn't like The Walking Dead. I don't know if Jesus likes The Walking Dead or not. But why are we talking about fads? Because we're at a point in the study of our text where the people following Jesus begin this movement of leaving him because they see him as nothing more than a passing fad. We'll see in the study today that after a period of kind of extreme, intense enthusiasm, the crowds just stopped following him. Now we picked up as, uh, if you want to turn in John, the sixth chapter, we're going to look at starting with verse 60, if you've got a Bible or you want to open your tablet or phone to it. Just background. When we started in chapter 6, the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus is at the height of his popularity. He's done this huge miracle. He fed 5,000 men plus women and children. And it, the place, everybody there is buzzing about him. He, in fact, it's so intense that he has to escape, which leads to him walking on water, which was an amazing miracle. And then he calms the sea during a storm. The crowds were so pumped to make him king that he had to, he had to escape from them because that wasn't the plan that God had. And all of this then sets up, this, sets the scene up for what is often referred to as the bread of life discourse, or this teaching that we talked about last week, which is a really challenging, challenging topic. So John, in this text we're going to look at today, he he gives us what kind of highlights what I would say are five, five perceptions that we need to see if we're following Jesus. Okay, now, those of you that are note-takers, your outline says four. That's on me, okay? I added a fifth one, and I forgot to update the, the data, and they sent it to print, and that's my fault, okay? So don't look at any of our staff and go, hey, you let him down. Because that was me, okay? It's not them. So let me set this up. Jesus has just finished this bread of life sermon, this lesson about I am the bread of life, okay? And then out of that comes verse 60. This is what we read. On hearing it, that teaching on the bread of life, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? This is a hard teaching, 
who can accept it. I would agree. That's a, that was a hard topic. I was nervous as I started to prepare for it because it's, it's tough to explain. It's hard to understand. Hard teachings. The very first perception that we need to grasp onto as we're following Jesus, I want you to see it, is this one. The Bible sets a high bar. The Bible sets a high bar. It's always true. Compared to the expectations that the world has, the Bible sets a high bar. The Bible expects us to live like Jesus, which requires us to do certain things and live in certain ways that are oftentimes, by the world's assessment and even by our own assessment, are hard to do. Here's some of the hard teachings that we find in the Bible. This is not an exhaustive list, but here's, here's some things that people find to be very hard. The first one is this, love your enemies. Jesus said that. He said it in Matthew 5, 44. Listen, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He's saying, I want you to increase your compassion for people who want to harm you. I want you to pray for them. That's not easy. That's hard. There's a second one. Restrain your desire for revenge. You want to get even with somebody, right? Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 12. He said, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. God says, I know you want to get even. You want to settle the score. That's my job. I'm going to balance everything out in the end. So just let me handle that. So don't get revenge. And then the third one, a third hard teaching, deny yourself. What? Deny yourself. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 16. He said, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, deny themselves, and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus is saying that there are certainly things in this world that are okay and they're fine and some of them are even good. But if you're going to be the disciple in my kingdom, you're going to have to say no to some of those good things. You're just going to have to say no to them. You're going to have to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Those are hard teachings. Some of them are hard because they're hard to understand. Some of them are hard because they're hard to live. They're hard to apply it to our lives. Hard teachings challenge us. But keep in mind that these words, the Bible, is God-centered. These are God's teachings. Now, why is that important? Because Isaiah gives us some really good insight. Listen to what Isaiah said. Isaiah 55, 9. As the heavens are higher than the earth... So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. What's he saying? He's saying some of God's teachings are over our heads. Even for the smartest in this group, they're over our heads. But even then, that doesn't mean that we should walk away from them. Just because it's hard doesn't mean we we don't have to live it out. So he picks, we pick it up in verse 61 then, and something is happening in the group, right? Something has happened. They said it's a hard teaching. And then we read this in the first part of verse 61. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this. The disciples are grumbling about this hard teaching. You know, they're complaining under their breath, just kind of to each other, nudging each other, right? We grumble when? When we disagree with something or we don't like something, don't we? We never grumble about stuff we love. Oh, that chocolate cake was great. We never do that. It's always about, oh, my wife won't let me have that chocolate cake. You know, that's what we grumble about. We grumble about things we don't like or things 
that we disagree with. When we grumble and complain, two things happen. We stop trying to understand the teaching and we stop trying to apply it. So stuff just shuts down. We not only impede our own walk and potentially can damage our own example, our testimony, but we can also impact those we grumble to. We can bring them down in the process. This whole discussion about grumbling brings us to the second perception that we need to see when we're following Jesus, and that is grumbling slows progress. Spiritually speaking, it slows things down. You're not growing as fast when you're complaining and grumbling. Then at the last, last part of verse 61, Jesus asks this question. It says, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Now, that's a really good question because they're grumbling and he knows it and he knows they're ticked off about it and so he just confronts it, right? He just steps right into that and says, hey, does this bother you guys? Is this, this whole talk about the bread of life, does it bother you? Does this offend you? And it's interesting because the Bible or the words of Jesus often do offend people, especially when those words are confronting sin in their life. Here's a fact. Darkness hates life, period. Because when light shows up, darkness is, is gone. And if there's sin in your life and the Word of God comes in, it's like a big, big spotlight beaming into your life. And it reveals all those things that you're, you'd rather keep hidden. Because when, when they're hidden, you don't have to address them. But when they're, when they're in the light, you've got to address them. Jesus knew that his followers were grumbling and complaining. So he asked them this question. Does this offend you? Here's the thing. If the Bible offends you, it may be exposing sin in your life. And I would strongly recommend that you address it. Deal with that sin. When Jesus asks them, Do you, does this offend you? The record tells us that nobody answered. There's no response recorded. So he steps right in and says, does this offend you? And all the buzz, all the murmuring, all the grumbling and everything, they just they stop. And they're like, oh, oh. they became all involved in their own little fish sandwiches. You know, not... Hey, I'm sorry, what did you say, Lord? I was just prayerfully meditating over here. There's no record of anybody answering. Why? Because they're not going to answer him. They can't. They've been complaining. So Jesus continues. Verse 62. It's an interesting verse. Some of you may think he's changing direction. I think he's just taking it to another level. Look what verse 62 says. <coughs> Excuse me. Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before. What's he talking about? He's talking about his ascension. Now here's the deal. They stumbled over the fact that he claimed to come down from heaven. In the Bread of Life discourse, he talked about he came down from heaven. They had a problem with that. And then he said they had to eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to be saved. They had a big problem with that. They didn't understand it. They were thinking of it in a physical sense. And they're thinking, cannibalism, that is just weird. But if, so what he's saying here is if they stumbled over those two topics, what would they do if they saw him ascending into heaven? Jesus is making the point here that when he came, calling himself the bread of life, that he was coming as the giver of supernatural life. He's the redeemer who is sent by the living God to impart eternal life to all who will put their trust in him. He was calling his disciples to a deeper commitment 
And they had a problem with that. He told his disciples, you have to come into me. You have to be united to me. It's as if you are feasting upon me. I want to be part of every facet of your life. Not just a casual connection to me. We'll get it done. He's calling his followers to an all-out pursuit of a relationship with him. Here's the deal. There is no spiritual life without a personal relationship with Jesus. If we're having difficulty with this hard teaching about the bread of life, wait until you witness with your own eyes the ascension. It is as if he's saying, if you thought that was hard, this is going to blow your minds. I can't wait. If there are ways that God gives us to live, and those are the best ways that we should live, then how are we to live them out, especially when they're hard teachings? How do we do that? I'm convinced that we have a greater chance of success in living out the parts of the Bible, especially the parts that are harder, when we are part of a biblical community. Think about that for a second. When we're part of a group of people who get together for the specific purpose of explaining biblical truth and trying to figure out ways to apply it in their lives, encouraging others to apply the Bible in their daily lives, and then in that group, you have two, three, four, maybe five or six real close, meaningful relationships who really know you. They know you. They know your junk. They know your, your struggles. They know your, your shortcomings. They know what you're good at. Those people know you. And those are the people that help you to live the Bible every day. That makes living like Jesus much more doable. If you're doing it on your own, you're probably going to hit that point in your life where you run aground, where you can't do it. You cannot do this by yourself. We just weren't wired that way. Somebody said, no man is an island. That's true. We need each other. When we compare the Bible with the ways of this world, there are parts of the Bible that are hard to understand, and there are other parts that are equally hard to put into practice. But that doesn't mean we should ignore those points. So get connected in this church. If this is the place where you've landed, you said, this is where I'm going to be, then take that next step and get plugged into a group. Some area of biblical community here, a discipleship group, a life group, one of the classes on Sunday morning. There's a number of different opportunities. And if you need help, just contact me. I'd be happy to get you connected. The Bible's teachings are challenging because they they expose the flaws in our character. And there are two ways that we, we tend to react when that happens. When the light gets shined in our darkness and it reveals our sin, there are two ways that we respond. The first one is we oftentimes can be paralyzed by fear because we think God is this demanding ogre. He's this unsatisfiable master who expects perfection, right? The other way that we can respond, though, is we can let those teachings kind of sink in and motivate us to work to constantly improve, to grow, to become more and more like the example of Jesus. Are we ever going to be perfect like Jesus was? Not this side of heaven. But shouldn't we be moving in that direction? John said in 1 John 2, 6, those who claim to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So if you claim to be like him or part of him, then you should live like him. 
That's what John said. Do all the pro, do all, do all, uh, don't, excuse me, don't allow the progress to be run aground or slowed by our grumbling when we face hard teachings. Don't let it slow you down. Don't let grumbling be part of your vernacular. Jesus went on then, and he talks to these waffling, they're wavering, the disciples. They're, they're, on, they're, they're, very, they're very unstable right now. And he comes to them with some other vital things. These are very, very important. First thing that he says is in verse 63, he says, The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. Which brings us to the third perception that we need to get, Okay? If we're going to follow Jesus, we need to see this. And that is that the Spirit gives life. Just quote in the verse. The Spirit gives life. It's important to see that what Jesus mentions the flesh in this verse, he's not talking about his own flesh anymore like he was in the bread of life discourse. He's not talking about his own flesh. He's talking about our fallen human nature. He's talking about this sinful bent that we have. This is a major theme throughout Scripture, okay? This isn't going to be a new theme. In fact, he's already, he's already had a conversation with this. He had a conversation back in John, the third chapter, with a religious leader by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to him privately. He was a Pharisee. He was kind of high up in the whole thing. He was somebody in the church. You know, he's like a Mac Daddy of the Jewish synagogue. And the deal was that he wanted to find out more about what Jesus had to say. And this is what Jesus said to him in John 3, 6. He said, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. He told Nicodemus that the flesh couldn't produce spiritual fruit. Nicodemus thought that, that it was possible. In our nature our fallen condition, we cannot do the things of God. We have no strength for spiritual things and no inclination to live like Jesus until, until we accept Him as our Lord and Savior and we allow the Holy Spirit into our lives to transform us. If you are banking on the strength of your own righteousness, you have missed what Jesus is talking about here. And not to mention, Paul then piles on this. He just adds to it. Listen to what he says in Romans 7, 18. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That's the Apostle Paul. In my mind, and this is maybe not fair because we're all under the grace of God, so we should be even. But you know, when I think about somebody who's really living the gospel out in his life, Paul would be somebody way up the scale, right? And I'm kind of right down here, right? And Ballard and Zimmerman down here, but I'm right here, you know? Fox is a little bit higher than me, but the, those other guys down there. And, but here's Paul, and Paul says, no good exists in me. If he says that, what do we are? What, what? I wouldn't want to be them. But what about, you know, we have a phrase around here. When I first came uh, to, into this job, one of our elders said this phrase one time, and it really resonated, resonated with me. He said, we're all jacked up. And he's right. There's no good that really is, you know, naturally in us. And the longer I got to know him, the more jacked up I realized he was. He was in the first service. He did not like that. 
But it's true, and it's true about you. You know it. You're not telling everybody your secrets, but you know it, and it's true about me. We don't have it in us. Your flesh cannot get you into the kingdom of God. So we must not put our confidence in the flesh. We must put it in the Spirit, as Jesus said, who gives life. Now, Jesus goes on. The end of verse 63 says, The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. That's a cool verse. So that brings us to the fourth perception we see when we're following Jesus. We need to see this. And that is that Jesus gives words of life. Jesus gives words of life. How does the Spirit make us alive? Remember, I just said the Spirit gives life. Well, how does the Spirit make us alive? He does it through the words of God. The Spirit uses the Word of God, the Bible, to pierce our hearts and to convince us to make changes. Well, there's a lot in that passage, but we need to move forward. Finally, what Jesus does is he gets very, very direct with his disciples. Some have even said, one scholar said, he got blunt with the disciples. Look what he says in in verses 64 and 65. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. He says there are some of you who don't believe. They've been following him for a long time. After everything that had happened, everything that this huge group of disciples had seen, and yet still many of them don't believe. And Jesus knew it. Jesus knew who didn't believe and who would betray him. In fact, the last two verses of this chapter, verses 70 and 71, John reveals that what Jesus is talking about here is Judas. Judas was one of the twelve, and he wasn't a believer. In fact, Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. After all that had happened, there were all of these people, so many of them, who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And that was the final straw. You had the you had the bread of life discourse, and now you've had this, this kind of conversation, breaking it down, what was going on, all the mumbling, all the grumbling, all of this frustration, Jesus confronting their unbelief. And then we read in John 6, 66. Now, it's, think about that, the number 666, right? Don't read into him, but, but this, is a, this is a bad verse, okay? Look what he says. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. This is, sad. this is a sad verse. And it gives us the fifth perception we need to see when we're following Jesus. And that is, don't miss the Savior. You can get busy, you can get preoccupied, all that. But don't be like these people who walked away. They had the Messiah right in front of them. And they missed it. The result of this message on the bread of life and the discussion that followed was the loss of most of the disciples. They went back to their old life, their old religion, their old hopeless situation that they had come from. Jesus is the way. That's what John says in John 14, 6. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. But they wouldn't know that because they stopped following him. 
Had this happened to me as a leader where everybody just left except a handful, it would have devastated me, but not Jesus. He wasn't devastated by it. There's no surprise to the Lord. In fact, verse 64, he said that he had known from the beginning which of them did not believe. They knew from the very beginning because he knows the hearts of all people, which means he knows your heart today. And he knows the condition of my heart. Jesus watched the exodus of his former disciples as they walked off. All of those who were offended by his teaching. And then he turns to the twelve, and Jesus said, you do not want to leave too, do you? And this is a pivotal moment for the twelve. This is a pivotal moment for them. And no matter what you think about Peter, Peter is a guy who, on multiple occasions, Peter jumps in and says something he shouldn't, and he ends up with his size 12 sandal in his mouth. He's, he's just... He punts the ball out of bounds all the time. He knocks your croquet ball into the pool all the time. That's the kind of guy Peter is. But in this moment, he gets a dead solid right. Listen to what Peter said. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter didn't deny that Jesus' teachings were hard, because they were. But he acknowledged that Jesus' words were words of life. The twelve had nowhere else to go, he said. Where else would they find the words of life? Jesus is the only one that had them. When Jesus asked the twelve, do you want to leave too? Peter gave two reasons, two reasons why they stayed with Jesus. And I think these are two key reasons to follow him. The first is that Jesus has eternal life. He has eternal life, and he will give it to those who will trust him. And secondly, he says, we believe, you should circle that word if you're taking notes, and know, circle that word as well. We believe and know that you are God. We believe and know that you are God. The use of the perfect tense in those two verbs, believe and know, indicates a fixed and settled decision. Peter is affirming that they have reached a final conviction, that they believe and they know. It's settled science in their mind. They believe and they know that Jesus is indeed the Holy One of God. What was it, I wonder, that convinced them that Jesus was the Holy One of God? Was it when he turned the water into wine at that that marriage feast in Cana? Was it when he fed the 5,000 plus the women and children? Was it when he walked on the water or calmed the storm and made it crystal clear? Was it, a, was it all of his teachings that brought, him, brought them to an understanding this is the Son of God? Or was it a culmination of all of that? At what point? We don't know. The disciples came to understand this is the Holy One of God. But Peter's statement reveals that in spite of all his usual awkwardness, his faith in Jesus was genuine. It was real. And Peter's a great example that you don't need to be perfect, but you must put your trust in Jesus. No matter how jacked up you might be, Jesus has the words of life. And he can change 
the eternal direction of your life. God draws sinners to the Savior through the power of truth, and that truth is found in His Word. Some might say that this message today is foolishness, and that is possible. Some of you might even agree with it, and there are parts of it that I would say, maybe that's silly and we should have done something different. But it's very possible that someone could come to know Jesus because of this talk today, because of one factor, and that is that we're using the Word of God to point to the Savior. You see, those who reject the Word will reject the Savior, much like the crowds who stop following Jesus. Those who receive the Word, though, will receive the Savior, and they will experience the new birth and eternal life. Jesus said this, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Do you have that assurance today? You see, I think anytime we get together, there's always the possibility that somebody is here who, when we talk about this, it's just foreign to them. It's like somebody's speaking Cantonese and they can't understand it. But when you say something like, is there a need in your life? I mean, right at the core of your being, is there something missing? Is there, a, is there something, a hunger? Maybe you would define it as a spiritual hunger that lives inside of you or exists within you. That's something, it's a vacuum. And everything that you try to satisfy that, it just doesn't satisfy it. Let me ask you this. Is it possible that Jesus is the answer for what is missing in your soul? Are you willing to admit that you need to be forgiven for what you've done in this life. You're not proud of it. When we talk about being jacked up, you know exactly what it is in the list of things in your life that have kind of pushed you out of the ordinary. If you will reach out and accept God's grace, He'll forgive you. But you have to come to the Savior. If you will, He will save you and He will satisfy you forever. Don't make the mistake that the crowds made thinking that Jesus was just a passing fad. Because my friends, He's far more than that. He's the greatest to ever walk on this planet. So don't walk away from Him because you can't afford it. None of us can. Don't miss out on the greatest thing that will ever happen to you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you for your love for us. And I'm so grateful today, God, that you have given us your word to enlighten us and to shine light into our lives and help us to grow. We know some of these teachings are hard, but give us, give us patience and give us a, a sense of due diligence to, to stay with it and hang in there to try to live these things. Lord, help us not to grumble and complain. We know that just slows down the growth process in our lives and potentially in the lives of people around us. Lord, you are the one who gives life. You have the words of life. Your spirit gives life. Lord, help us to lean into you. I pray, God, for those in this room who may not know you. Don't let them miss the Savior like the crowd of disciples did as they turned away and started to follow Jesus no more. Help all of us, God, to realize 
that you are the best thing that could ever happen to us. You satisfy that emptiness in the center of our soul. You give us a meaning and a purpose. And you also promise not only will you deposit your spirit in us to guide us and give us direction, but you give us the promise of eternal life with you in heaven and we get to be part of your family. Lord, I pray for that man or that woman, that student who's here who may not have ever taken that step, that today would be the day that they would do that and let you move in and to fill in the emptiness. I pray that today, Lord, in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. If you've never taken that step of faith, and we want to want you to know we're going to worship him. I'm going to be down front. There'll be some others down here. We'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe you have something on your heart. You're just feeling a real heavy burden, and you just want to pray with somebody. You want somebody to pray with you, or you just have a question. We'd love to talk to you. Don't, don't let anything stand in the way of you taking that step to make Jesus your Lord. Let's stand together and worship him. Come if you have a need.